really wasn't sure what to do this morning. Um, normally I try to do something that relates to being a counselor or this or that, but I'm not doing that. I'm just going to share with you a shayla I got recently and uh, go through uh, what I think might be the answer together with you. If you're interested, it's great. If you're not interested, also great. But uh, here's the shayla. I got a uh, text from a guy last week, and it said that his wife works in a local school, not local to here, there aren't too many schools local to where we are now, but his wife works in a local school, and uh, when she got her job, she said, so do you have a curriculum for me? And they told her, no, you're on your own, figure it out. You're the teacher, you gotta figure out what to teach. So she, uh, she spent four hours a day, her first year teaching, building a curriculum. I don't know if you know how much teachers work in terms of, you know, making the quizzes and the worksheets and the, you know, and she spent four hours a day her first year. And then her second and her third year, she spent an hour a day refining the curriculum. So now, after a few years, she has a really fantastic curriculum with, uh, with cahoots and with with uh, smart board stuff and with all sorts of uh, really, uh, really well-organized curriculum. And now it's a few years later and she's leaving the yeshiva. She's leaving the school. So as she was leaving, you know, she said goodbye to the, uh, to, to, to the people in the school. They said, um, please send a, you know, give us the curriculum. And she said, no, I'm, I'm leaving. It's my curriculum. I spent hours and hours on it. I'm taking it with me. And they said, um, no, you're not allowed to take it with you. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to us. Um, we will be kind enough to allow you to continue using it wherever you go, but we don't even have to do that. It's ours. It's not yours. And she said, what are you talking about? I spent four hours there on this. I got paid no more than a regular teacher who's handed a curriculum. Uh, so this was all my time. This is all my effort. I own the curriculum. And they're at this uh, stalemate. So the school came back to her. She sent me the email that the school sent her, which said, Hi, uh, so-and-so, I wanted, a clar- I wanted clarity and some information about this issue. So I just spoke to our Menahel. And he said that as per our postgame, any work done for our yeshiva while contracted by our yeshiva is the intellectual property of our yeshiva. While we will allow you to continue use it, that using it, there is no halachic grounds to prevent our yeshiva from using it. Um, just curious, by a show of hands, for all of those who follow that question, how many people think that the yeshiva is in the right? How many people think, okay, a couple. How many people think that the teacher's in the right? How many people are not sure? Okay, so this is what I find. I find that most people, when I ask this Shiloh, just over the, the past week or so, most people are sure of the answer. But normally it splits 50-50 in terms of, uh, you know, what, which, is, which are the best kinds of questions. Because then you have strong opinions on both sides and you figure it out. So, uh, so what's the issue over here? What, who, who, said, uh, who said they think the school is in the right? There were a couple. Why is the school in the right? Right. Okay. I mean, how would we know? How would we be able to tell if this is uh, if the school is if the school is right? I mean, the schools aren't the only the only businesses that deal with this issue. No. Like, let, let's say you work for Amazon and you develop some some sort of software, and then you switch jobs and you work for Google. Are you allowed to bring that software with you? They will sue you to the ends of the earth if you if you, you even bring a mashahu of that job of that job with you. Yeah. What's that? 
Ah, so that's a great question. Does it say anything in the, in the contract? A standard teacher's contract says um, this person will teach for this year for this salary, and that's it. There's no details whatsoever in the teacher. And sometimes there's a line, and we'll uphold the behaviors expected of a teacher in our school so that it gives the school coverage in case they want to fire the teacher for whatever. Um, but, you know, for you know, behaving in a way that's, uh, that's, that's very terrible. So there's nothing, and obviously the best way to avoid all of these things is just by putting something in the contract. But it said nothing in the contract. She used her, uh, was she using school software to develop it? I don't know, I assume she has a home computer and that it didn't require any sophisticated software. Most of what she used was her own brain, right? Most of what she used was her time and her brain. Question is, who owns her time and her brain during that, uh, or what, what her time and her brain produces during the time that she's employed? Ah, so would it be different if she came to the job with the curriculum? Probably, right? Probably. I would imagine it would be different. The school never paid for that curriculum, except it paid her while she was developing that, that curriculum. So how would we go about answering this question? So I think what we need to do first is to discuss, is there such a thing as intellectual property in halacha? Meaning, normally in halacha, we think of things as like, if you steal, you've stolen like an object. You steal this computer. You steal, you know, someone's watch. You see, you have, you have, they had it, now you have it because you've stolen it. So then you follow all the dinam of stealing. When it comes to ideas and concepts and, uh, you know, how to put things together, so that's an intellectual... And, 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 and by sending it to the school, she doesn't lose it. She still has it also, right? Uh, meaning it's something that could be... Uh, there's an, an endless number of copies that could be made of it, an infinite number of copies that could be made of it. So how do we view intellectual property in general um, in halacha? Certainly in law, in, in American law, intellectual property is a big deal. It's a very big deal, right? People get things copyrighted. Is there such a thing as even a copyright in halacha? I get this Shiloh all the time about people who want to, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they, they found a website where they can get the textbook that, you know, that normally, uh, you know, uh, costs, uh, whatever, 150 bucks, and they found a website that where someone just scanned the whole thing in, and, you know, and you can get a PDF for free. So are you allowed to use that? So uh, you're not taking anything that belongs to somebody but it's intellectual property. So is that a thing? Does halacha recognize that? So there are some that want to argue. It doesn't say it anywhere. There's no halacha that recognizes it. There, there are two arguments that are, more than two, but we'll, we'll discuss two arguments that are made that intellectual property does mean something. There's a sugi in the Gemara talk, that talks about ani hamenakev perosh hazayiz. It means the following. There's a poor guy. He's starving. There's a hefker tree, an olive tree, and he wants olives. Um, he must be really desperate. Olives are disgusting. But he wants... Yeah, I hate olives. I don't know. He wants, he wants olives. So we, the poor guy climbs up to the top of the olive tree. Now, he could just pick one olive at a time and put them in his pocket and then he'll have some olives. But that's not an efficient way of doing things. So he goes to the top of the tree and he just starts shaking the tree, starts rattling the tree, and all these olives fall down to the ground beneath him. And, uh, and that way he figures when he comes down from the tree, he'll pick up all those olives. How do you make a Kenyan in halacha? If you want to be Kona something from Ephra, you want to be Kona an olive, what do you have to do? You have to pick it up. So he didn't pick it up. All he did was he shook the tree. The olives came down. Then another guy comes by and sees all these olives all over the floor. And he's like, oh, awesome. And the other guy comes and takes it all for himself. 
Did the second guy do anything wrong? He sees the Ani shaking the olives. He's like, ah, it's raining olives. And he goes around catching all of the olives. So did the, did the second guy do anything wrong by taking those olives? So the Gemara says, yes. It's considered Gezel Midevrehem. Gezel Midrabanan. Midoraisa, not Gezel. He didn't steal anything that belonged to anyone because the Ani never made a Kenyan on it. He never made a, a proper transaction. But the Gemara assumes that Midrabanan, since he put in extraordinary effort to be able to have those olives, and as a result of that effort, those olives were readily available, so he acquired it on a Durabanan level. Now, when a musician uh, makes a musical composition, he writes a song, when, a, uh, when an author writes a book, they put in extraordinary effort to produce that which they are producing. And therefore, one could argue that it would be Gezel Mitrabanan to take that which, uh, that which they put in extraordinary effort to produce. That is one possible Maramakum. Another possible Maramakum for the idea that you can own something that is, uh, that is not tangible at all is a Gemara in Meseches Babakama, really in Mishra Meseches Babakama, the Mishra Meseches Babakama tells us Arba Avos Nezikin, there are four types of Avos Nezikin, one of the Avos Nezikin is Bar. How do you do Bar? How do you damage with Bar? What do you do? You dig a Bar where? In Rosh Hashanah. Do you own the Rosh Hashanah? No. And yet you dug a bar in the Rosh Hashanah and you hide for that. The Gemara says that this is one of two things that are Eno Birushusa Shaladam. They're not in Yerushus, you don't own them. But Asana Kosov Ki'iluhu Birushusa. The Torah makes it like it's in Yerushus, as if it's yours. And then the Gemara goes on to say, and you know what you're really chayiv for when it comes to bar? The, the, the Gemara explains that the damage that happens to the animal in a bar is caused by the Hevel of the bar. What is Hevel? The thick, heavy air of the bar. The dense air of the bar. Who owns the air? Nobody. Air is not even tangible. It's not even something physical. And yet, Rashim Shkap points out, the Gemara is willing to tell us that you are the owner of that air insofar as it's you that, that's doing the damage. That it's considered that it's your, your air that's doing the damage. But no one owns air. Air is just air. So says Rashim Shkap, you see that even a Dover She'en Bomamish, something that has no physicality whatsoever, can be owned, that there's a possibility of ownership. So you see that it could be that when you create something, like this guy created that thick air of the bar, when you create something, you become the owner of it. These are two of the arguments that are used to say that intellectual property means something. So it's a machlokas, right? Does intellectual property have any standing in halacha? And this, you know, there are many, many stories throughout Jewish history where, uh, where this came up and was a huge debate. Probably the most famous one uh, was the case of Maram Padua. Uh, the Maram Padua was one of the Gedolei Israel, and he entered into a partnership with a non-Jewish publisher in Venice to make a new edition of the Rambam. It was going to be the, the, the corrected edition of the Rambam. They were going to fix all the mistakes. It had some of the Maram Padua's comments in this edition of the Rambam. The Maram Padua spent a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort to have the most perfect Rambam ever published. And shortly after that, so he, he partnered with a non-Jewish publisher. Shortly after that, another non-Jewish publisher published a Rambam. Without the Maram Padua's comments, without corrections of all the mistakes, but it was way cheaper, way cheaper. So the Maram Padua was really upset. 
because this guy was underselling him. Meaning, if if he's charging two hundred bucks for a set of Rambam and the other guy's charging ten bucks for a set of Rambam, they'll say, okay, I'll spend the ten bucks and I'll do without Naran Padua's comments and I'll do without whatever corrections. How how important could the corrections be after all? You know, you get the basic idea of the Rambam for ten dollars. Why should? In fact, the second publisher was losing money on it. He was just doing it to to undersell the Maran Padua and his publisher. So they asked the Shaila whether people are allowed to buy from the second publisher. Is it a problem to support that second publisher's publishing of the Rambam? Who do they ask the Shaila to? None other than the Ramah. This does not appear in the Ramah and Shulchan Aruch. This is the Ramah in a tshuva. The Ramah wrote a tshuva. It happens to be, um, Ramah doesn't mention this in the tshuva, but Maran Padua was his cousin. So uh, it's just an interesting uh, note that the Ramah felt that he was not going to be biased and that he can uh, give a reasonable psak without thinking about the fact that Maran Padua was his cousin. So the Ramah said it is usher to buy or to sell the other edition of the Rambam that went against Maran Padua. And he, made a, and he knew no one was going to listen, so he made a cheirim. Because even if people won't listen to an iser, they'll listen to a cheirim. Anyone, he made a cheirim on anyone who sells, buys, or aids in the sale of this uh, second edition of the Rambam. And once the Ramah said that, he made a cheirim on that, then it became very popular for people when they published a book to, uh, to always include a cheirim uh, uh, from a well-known posek to ban the, uh, the publishing of the same sefer for a period of time. Meaning if you wrote a major sefer, you, could, you would have some major posek. That's what haskamas used to be. Haskamas nowadays are a little bit different. Nowadays if you get a haskama from a rabbi, it's, uh, you know, from a big gadol, it says, oh, I know this author, he seems like a really super sweet guy and I don't have time to read his book, but I'm sure it's really great. And, uh, you know, so go buy it and support it. That's usually what it says. Very, very rarely will it say, I read it cover to cover and, uh, you know, here are my ha'aros. Usually it's, I don't have time for this, I just have a pile of books that people want me to write askamas to. So, uh, you know, I, I don't even know this author, but his grandfather was a nice guy. You know, whatever. It's good to read askamas sometimes to see just how meaningful they are. But it used to be that askama meant that a gadol said, it's usher to, to republish this book for 10 years, 25 years, whatever number, of, whatever number of years they give in order for the guy to be able to sell it. And the reason was to protect the author. He was working so hard, he published something. If someone else is just going to go and sell it, he'll never recoup his investment. He'll never make his, uh, his money back. So that's what happened with the Ramon and Padua, and that led to a whole history of, of fights about this. But, but the one important fight about this that really relates to this discussion that really relates to our discussion happened in the 1800s. Um, there was a major dintor in the 1800s. In the year 1850, there was a printer by the name of Yosef Hirsch Balaban who published a big Shulchan Aruch with all the major commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch. And for the first time ever, he published on the bottom of the Shulchan Aruch the commentary called Pischei Tshuva. And it was never included in the Shulchan Aruch before. He published the Pischei Tshuva at the bottom of the Shulchan Aruch. Now the problem was, the author of the Pischei Tshuva had published his book separately as just a separate one-volume little pamphlet called Pischei Tshuva. Now Pischei Tshuva is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, but the author wrote it as a separate volume, and you had to have your Shulchan Aruch, and then you look in the, in the Pischei Tshuva. When the author of the Pischei, before the author of Pischei Tshuva died, he sold the rights 
to Pischei Tshuva to somebody else, to a printer. Uh, he sold the exclusive rights of Pischei Tshuva to a printer. So uh, at the time, the Pischei Tshuva had only been published once, and it was this one-volume thing. So now this guy published the Shulchan Aruch with the Pischei Tshuva, and the guy, the printer who bought the rights to the Pischei Tshuva said, you can't do that. I own the Pischei Tshuva. You can't publish a Pischei Tshuva on the bottom of the Shulchan Aruch. So now the natural thing for him to respond would have been what? What would you respond if you're the publisher who just put the Pischei Tshuva on the bottom of the Shulchan Aruch? You don't own the Pischei Tshuva. Pischei Tshuva's ideas, it's words. I can copy those same words. That's just, that's not a thing. It's not, you know, something of substance. So what, what, what it might boil down to is, what it might, is whether you can own something like that. Do you own ideas? Do you own intellectual property? So they had this huge debate whether the guy who had just published the Shulchan with the Pesach Yitzhak for the first time was, uh, was allowed to do so. And there was a three-way Machlok Saposkim, and I think this three-way Machlok Saposkim talks directly to our Shaila. The first, first they went to the local rabbi, by the name of, uh, Rav, by the name of Shmuel Waldberg in the town of Zalkova, and he poskined in favor of the guy who put out the Shulchan Aruch with the Pischei Tshuva. And he said three things. He said, first of all, the Pischei Tshuva, when it was originally published, never had a cherem that you're not allowed to do it. You're supposed to put a cherem on it that says that you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to republish it. He forgot to put a cherem on it. So if there's no cherem, you're allowed to do whatever you want. Second of all, he says, the original edition of Pischei Tshuva is not available anymore. So I don't care that someone bought the exclusive rights. It's not available. It's not, no, one, no one can get it anywhere. So this guy is making it available something that wasn't available. Third of all, he said, the people who are going to buy a one-volume Pischei Tshuva are not the same people that are going to buy this new Shulchan Aruch with Pischei Tshuva. When you buy a one-volume Sefer, you know, you go into the farm store, you like, you look at the back of the Sefer, it's like fourteen ninety-nine. All right, for 15 bucks, I'll buy the safer whether I like it or not. You know, it's worth a risk, right? You go into the farm store and you see a giant set of Shulchan Aruch, you know, that's many, many volumes and they're very tall and they barely fit on any standard bookshelf. You're going to think a few times before you buy such a thing. So it's not even the same market of people. Granted, it's the same words they're using, but it's not even the same market of people that would buy it. And therefore, uh, this Ravaldberg said that there's no doubt that, uh, that the guy was allowed to publish the Shulchan Aruch with the Pischei Tshuva on the bottom. But essentially what he's saying is that the Pischei Tshuva doesn't own the Pischei Tshuva. That the, the person who wrote Pischei Tshuva is not the owner of his own work. Why? Why is he saying that? How, how is he saying that? If he was the owner of his own work, no, what did he do? He sold the exclusive rights to somebody else. That means that if I own it, if I own what I produce, and I sell the exclusive rights to somebody else, that means the exclusive rights belong to that person. And he's the owner of the work now. This Revolver completely ignores that. He assumes that just because you produce something, you don't own it. It doesn't necessarily mean that you own it. Then a second shita came out. The Shuva Shoal Lameshev writes, What are you talking about, he says? If I work on something, I own it. And the Pischei Tshuva owns the Pischei Tshuva. And you don't need a cherem. A cherem is just a way to get people to listen. But, you know, there, the, the, you know, there are a lot of halachos that are halacha even if you don't have a cherem on it. It's a halacha. You just make a cherem. If you, you know what a cherem is? A cherem is a curse that people should die. So people get scared by a cherem. Right? Meaning a cherem doesn't just mean that like, you don't give the guy an aliyah. It's a curse that the person should die. 
So people get very scared off by a cherem. But even without a cherem, an author is an owner is an owner of what he authors. Uh, someone who produces music is the owner of that music. No one else is allowed to use that. So that's minakatsa lakatsa, an opposite opinion. Then there's a third opinion. The Tshuvas Beis Yitzchak. Tshuvas Beis Yitzchak writes that halacha does not recognize intellectual property as ownership. The author has a right of ownership, but only because the government says so. Whoa, this is a totally different approach. So, so again, so far we had two approaches. We have this Revaldberg who said, you don't own anything that you produce, there is no ownership, it's just words, and anyone can put those words somewhere else, unless there's a cherem against it. Then you have the, uh, the Shoal Ameshev, who said, if you produce something, you own it. And then you have the Tshuva Space Yitzchak, who says, ask the government. We have a concept called Dina de Malchus Adina. The government has to set up a system of laws that, uh, that we have to abide by. So if there's a government regulation that says that there's copyright, then there's a copyright. And if there's no government regulation that says there's a copyright, then there's no copyright. So, in our, so where does that leave us for our case? Let's go back to the teacher. According to the first opinion, this Rav Waldberg, does the teacher own her curriculum? No, because there's no such thing as owning intellectual property. According to the second opinion of the Sholomeshev, does the teacher own her curriculum? Yes, she produced the curriculum. According to the third opinion, the Beis Yitzchak, does the teacher own her curriculum? Uh, we have to find out what the American legal system says. We have to find out what, what the law is. It happens to be that in, in college professors' contracts, it's all spelled out. And in, in the high school and elementary school, middle school level, um, it's being fought out in the courts, like even, you know, as we speak. In the past decade or so, they realized that there's value to curriculum. That they, because websites started popping up where teachers were selling their curriculum. There was a teacher in California who made an extra 50 grand or something by selling uh, by selling their curriculum to different teachers throughout the country. An extra fifty thousand dollars, particularly on a teacher salary, is very very helpful. And uh, the teacher was saving the money, and the school district that the teacher worked for sued the teacher that that's not your fifty thousand dollars. You made that curriculum while you were working for the school district. Uh, that's our $50,000. And they were fighting it out in the courts. It seems that the Dina de Malchus is that the school district actually, uh, actually owns it. Which would mean that in this case, that in this case what? The school really owns it. Which would mean the school can tell the teacher, it's not yours. Much like Amazon could tell the former employee who's going to Google, it's not yours. You're not allowed to take the software that you developed here with you. So, uh, so that's what it would seem. What it would seem to be, yeah. Right. So the question is, why wouldn't it be subject to Malchus Din according to that first opinion? Right. So it could be that there was no Din of Malchus around intellectual property rights, and maybe nowadays that there is, he would agree that you'd have to follow Din of the Malchus. Or it could be that you would say Dina de Malchusa is for things also, only for things that are tangible. But if something that's not tangible at all, then it's not, or only something that really affects the well-being of society. Now one could argue that copyright laws definitely affect the well-being of society because, you know, uh, the, the, the people will be at each other's throats and, and you know, and, and forget, a society would never be able to develop any music, any books, or any anything if there was no such thing as a copyright because why would I invest all that 
money if someone else just rip it off and uh, and and uh, and make the same thing. So so it's only uh, the, the ability to produce anything within a society very likely is based. You know, dinim Malchusadina is an interesting thing. Why is it that we're bound by the laws of the government? Uh, it's not Jewish law. It's not Torah law. Why are we bound by the laws of the government? It's a major machlokas shown and why that is. My favorite opinion is uh, the Dvar of Ram, I think, writes that there is a halacha, one of the Shev Mitzvahs Pnei Noach is that they're supposed to make dinim. So can you imagine, we tell them, you have an obligation to make dinim so that we can then ignore those dinim. Meaning that, that would be ridiculous. We're, we're telling them that they have to make dinim and then we're going to go ignore those dinim. It must be by virtue of the fact that the Torah requires them to make dinim that we have to observe those dinim, that we have to keep those dinim that they, uh, that they make. So I asked a few people uh, what they thought about this. Um, so I asked a, a Dayan, who is a friend of mine, um, a Dayan from the RCA Basin, and he said that under American law, if your job description is to, just to teach, all of the curriculum development is on her own time and therefore it's totally hers. Meaning schools are expected to hire people who develop curriculum. If the school didn't hire someone who's going to develop the curriculum, then that was the teacher doing her own thing, and that is not owned by the school, it's owned by the teacher. I asked Rav Shechter Shlita what he thought. He totally disagreed. Rav Shechter said that uh, when the school hires you to teach, part of that job is to have what to teach. So if you feel that you're only going to teach effectively by developing a really good curriculum, so all of that is work you did for the school. That's all part of what your job is. I said, yeah, but Rebbe, there are some teachers that have just handed a curriculum. He said, okay, so those teachers you know, will do less work to be able to have what to teach. This teacher does more work. See, yeah, but she spent so much extra time of her own time. So Rav Shachter, again, wasn't moved by that. Rav Shachter said, I'm in yeshiva every day from morning Seder in the base marriage, afternoon Seder in the base marriage, from Meshachris until 6.30 p.m. every night. Uh, there are other rabbeim that come to yeshiva. They come for an hour, they say shir, and they go home. And, you know, they leave. Or they go to their office or whatever. He said, do I get paid any more than the other rabbeim in yeshiva? No. I mean, there are, yeah, every institution has like that. You have better teachers and you have worse teachers. You have teachers who put in more work and teachers who put in less work. And there's no, like, you know, pay scale that, uh, that, that, that changes the, uh, the payment for it. Rav Shechter even told me, I thought this was, like, uh, almost shocking. He said that when he wrote his svarim, he wasn't sure at first whether he's allowed to keep the money from the sales of his svarim. So I said, what, why wouldn't you be allowed to keep the money from your sale, the sales of your svarim? He said, because the yeshiva pays me to come up with good chidushet Torah. So if I come up with chidushet Torah, they own those chidushet Torah. Uh, I don't own it. I shouldn't be able to make money off it. So he said, but then he realized that the yeshiva pays him to say shiurim. They don't pay him to write those shiurim down. So when he, on his own time, writes them down, that's not at all an expectation of his job. Haraya, most of the rebbeim in yeshiva don't write svarim. Right? And uh, certainly it's not an expectation of the job to, to write Svarim. So he thought that he's allowed to, to keep the, uh, the, the proceeds from the Svarim. But he said, anything else the yeshiva asked me to do on yeshiva time, I can't keep any of that. He said, the yeshiva sends me to speak all over the place. Um, and they, they fly me here and they fly me there. So he says, I can't keep those miles. 
the miles go to the yeshiva. You know, whatever. Uh, that, that's how I don't. I don't take any of those uh, those miles. I said, Rebbe, I don't think that's. I think like industry standard. No matter who you work for, uh, it's always understood that the employee keeps the uh, the miles, unless it's uh, it's said otherwise. I'm pretty sure. In fact, when the yeshiva books trips for me, they always ask me, "Is there a preferred airline that you have mileage with that you want us to, to book the trip with?" But he said, "I'm not. I'm not taking the miles. I'm working for the yeshiva. I'm not going to take." He almost didn't take money for his own svarim, which is like mind-boggling. But uh, the, uh, the, it happens to be, I asked him, like, why don't you like, take a summer off from NCSY Kolo and just write more Svarim? Um, because he mentioned, I have so much more to write, but I'm busy working for the yeshiva. I have a hundred more mamarim in my head that I would like to put, you know, to put it down on paper. But I'm too busy with, uh, with, you know, with my job. So uh, he said, I work for a living. So uh, I said, maybe just like take a summer off, and instead of w- learning with fourteen-year-olds all day, maybe you can, you know, like write svarim that Tamid Chum will use for centuries. I didn't say it like that, but like that was what was going through my head. And uh, so, uh, so he said, no, nah, that's not really. You know, he, d- he d- doesn't think his avoda is to really uh, is to write as uh, as much when he has people to teach in front of him. That there are people uh, in person that he's able to transmit Torah. I mean, he feels that a Talmud Chacham's primary responsibility is to the. Uh, the people that are in front of him, the people that he encounters. If you have extra time, so then you could write. He said when he wrote his Svarim, um, it was only because people had asked him to write different pieces in different journals and things. And the, the editors of some of the journals said that we're going to lose our job if we can't get good Divrei Torah. So he said, so I'm trying to help them with their Parnassah. So that's why I wrote a few Divrei Torah here and there. But uh, we put them together and we made Svarim. But that, was the, that was the whole thing. But he thought that for sure, that for sure they own it. Um, so now, in the end of the day, if you have one die-in that says that the teacher owns it, one die-in that says that the school owns it, who actually owns it? So uh, what do you do in Dine Mominus when you have... So you can go to a Din Torah and see what those Dayanim say, but until such time that you go to a Din Torah, what's the right thing to do? What do you do when you have a suffix in, uh, in, in the ownership of something? So I told the teacher, You have it right now, and if you have it, and they want it, let them sue you for it. Let them take you to a Din Torah for it. And that would be the proper way to handle it. And maybe the Dayanim will rule in favor, will, will pass on like Rav Shechter, that they get it. But until then, so the guy, the husband and teacher said, uh, we actually don't have it. They have it because we saved it all. She saved it all on the smart board. So they actually uh, have it. So if, uh, I think she has a copy also. If she didn't, then it would be the opposite. Then for her to be able to use it, she would have to sue them in the basin. So anyway, this was a shadow that I was busy with last week. I thought it was an interesting question that came up. Everyone have a great day. Have a great summer. Looking forward to uh, learning together with you many times over the summer.